The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's from the Society of St. Pius V and also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Pretty good, Father. Thanks for being here tonight. Father, some time ago on one of our programs, we mentioned how Francis was apparently upset with uh, certain translations of the Our Father, and he felt that the ending of the Our Father, where it is usually uh, translated as lead us not into temptation, could somehow be incorrect or insufficient, and he suggested his own his own translation of that. And you mentioned at the time that perhaps we should do a program giving a real Catholic explanation of that text. And so I thought, Father, tonight I could do you one step better and we could perhaps go through the entire Our Father prayer as given in St. Matthew's Gospel and kind of break that down line by line and, and go through each of those. And to assist with that, Father, thought I, I, we could go through some of the Catena Aria uh, compiled by St. Thomas Aquinas, various fathers of the church and their commentary on this uh, on the sacred scripture, and we could use that as an assistant in that discussion. So, Father, just to begin here, this is from uh, St. Matthew's Gospel. This is chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, it reads thus, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And just a few comments here, Father. This first one is <clears throat> from the gloss where he says, Amongst his other saving instructions and divine lessons wherewith he counsels believers, he has set forth for us a form of prayer and few words, thus giving us confidence that we will quickly be granted, for which he, could, he would have us pray so shortly. Another comment here by St. Cyprian, he says, he who gave to us to live taught us also to pray, to the end that speaking to the Father in the prayer which the Son hath taught, we may receive a readier hearing. It is praying like friends and familiars to offer up to God of his own. Let the Father recognize the Son's words when we offer up our prayer. And seeing we have him when we send for an advocate with the Father, let us put forward the words of our advocate when, as sinners, we make petition for our offenses." So, Father, your, your comment on those first, uh, those first two passages from the Fathers of the Church there, I thought in particular this, this uh, passage from St. Cyprian, where he mentions this idea of praying in this very familiar manner to our Lord as our Father in heaven and, and, and using the words of the Son to intercede with the Father. I thought that was a particularly striking uh, comment upon the Our Father. Well, it certainly is. It was uh, very striking to those who heard those words from our Lord's own mouth, you know. They asked him, his, his own apostles asked him, our Lord, how they should pray. And he asked them to teach them to pray. And the first words that he says we should pray are uh, the words, Our Father. And the word Father actually is the first of, the two, of those two. Um, so our Lord actually taught us to call upon God as Father. Uh, this instructs us that God wants us to um, see him as a father, to regard him as a father, to love him as a father. And all that that means, you know, all the implications, uh, the good implications of fatherhood, 
It reminds us of St. Paul's words that all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named after the fatherhood of God. It all has its origin in God's own fatherhood. As you know, Tom, these ideas are anathema to Muslims. They consider God's fatherhood to be an outrageous attack on his God's dignity because they don't know the true God. As our Lord said, they have known not the Father nor me. Um, we consider fatherhood to be an honor and to a great dignity for a, a man here on earth. And um, we consider the fatherhood of God now to be a surpassingly great and uh, a supernatural dignity of God. The Muslims consider that to be an attack, as though it, it rules out the uniqueness of God, as though if God has a son who is his own, uh, his own word, eternal word, uh, like the Father in all things, actually consubstantial with the Father. Right? They consider this to be attacking God. It is, it is sad how the, their concept of God rules out fatherhood. And uh, it's as though their God is, 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 is just mere willfulness, you know? Um, why well, even that is why he contradicts himself all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Even in the Muslim, um, in, the, in the Muslim lore, their, their Allah contradicts himself all the time. It's just pure willfulness. Um, but we understand that God um, is not mere willfulness. He's so much more, right? Um, that the Son is the expression of himself, his divine intellect, which is God, the power of intelligence. The... Um, the fact that the breakthrough is there is that not only does God have, have, a, have a son, but the son is here telling us that we should regard God as our father, that we should have the relationship of children to him. Mm -hmm. That is a very powerful, powerful idea. And as St. Cyprian says, this is where our Lord wants us to start when we pray, mm -hmm. with that idea that we go to God as a child goes to a father in prayer. It's a, it's a beautiful thought. And the gloss, you mentioned the gloss is really just a, a commentator. We don't know the identity of it, but a commentator who reflects on the, the sacred scriptures and actually writes, as it were, his own meditations on the subject. So it's, it's not part of the sacred scriptures, but it is a commentary that comes down through the ages simply as the gloss. Um, because the church has actually taken that as a, uh, as a worthy commentary. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas refers to it, and a number of the other fathers also do uh, refer to it, because they also give it a good deal of, of uh, credibility and, uh, and worth. Mm -hmm. And that's what the, the reference to the gloss is. So they, when you read the Catena Aurea, you'll find that uh, St. Thomas has woven together in the narrative uh, the commentaries of known fathers of the church, but he'll also include the comments of the gloss, the gloss also because they are worthy to be numbered among the, uh, you know, the, those writers. Definitely. Another, another powerful idea here is uh, St. Augustine, just to paraphrase some of this, he, he mentions how in the Old Testament, God was, was set forth to, the, to Israel as, as usually some kind of uh, strict, harsh, ruling master, and they were almost like his slaves. 
but now we have the New Testament. It's totally changed where now uh, God has, has adopted us as his sons, and never before yeah. in the Old Testament where we was, was God referred well, to. Well, that totally sons. changed, of course. Well, sure, but... But, he, you know, our Lord did say he can't perfect the law. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly this idea that we are to pray to God, not only as a, as a creator, as an overlord, right, but as a father, that is something dramatically uh, different. That is a development there that only Christ could, could come and tell us to. None of the other prophets could teach us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. Um, but, but, but Christ our Lord, his true Son, taught us to pray this. And uh, that is very appropriate because it is only through our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, that we can be numbered as children of God and see God as our Father. I mean, after all, what did our Lord say to the apostles? At the Last Supper, he said, The Father loves you because you have loved me. And it's our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ and that relationship of faith and hope and charity, our love for him, that is the key to the Father's love for us. And our Lord says, No one can come to the Father. No one can come to me but the Father draw him. And no one uh, can come, uh, actually our Lord starts that expression by saying, no one can come to the Father, right, but through me. And no one can come to me but the Father draw him, that's what our Lord said. So again, you have the relationship between the Father and the Son, that it is impossible to come to Christ unless the Father draw one by grace to his Son. But it is through his Son then, that only, only through the Son that we can come to the Father. It, it is important for us to understand the meaning, though, <clears throat> the statement that no one can come to the Father except through Christ. And the Father does not draw anyone to him except through Christ. It has, one has to be drawn by the grace from the Father to come to the Son, that he may come to the Father. So when the Son of God teaches us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. I mean, this is a, a really a fulfillment of those words that our Lord, uh, our Lord not only taught the apostles to pray in St. Matthew chapter 6, but they coincide beautifully. And we see them as a fulfillment of what our Lord says in St. John's Gospel um, during the, those five chapters that our Lord gives the, certain, the, uh, the discourse to the apostles at the Last Supper. That uh, no one can... Come to me unless the Father draw him. But what he says before that is, no one can come to the Father except through me. Father, a, uh, a final point here on this, this this first verse of the Our Father. This is St. Cyprian again. He says, We say not my Father, but our Father, for the teacher of peace and master of unity would not have men pray singly and severally, since when any prays, he is not to pray for himself only. Our prayer is general and for all, and when we pray, we pray not for one person, but for us all, because we are all one. So also he willed that one should pray for all, according as himself and one did bear us all. There's another short quote here. These are attributed to, well, it's labeled as pseudo-Christism. It says, to pray for ourselves, it is, necess- it is our necessity, compels us, to pray for others, brotherly charity instigates. I thought that was an important point to remember. It is an important point, but it also mentions that uh, it brings out the point that not one or another apostle is mentioned as having a Lord teach 
teach me how to pray. The request was from the apostles as a, as a group, collectively, teach us how to pray. And our Lord responded by teaching them how to pray. But the, the points that they make there, um, these commentators on, on that statement, are very important to us because it reminds us that um, uh, when we pray to the Our Father, we are praying it corporately, as it were, as a body. Uh, that is what we mean by the communion of saints. I mean, we're united with the communion of saints, not only throughout the world at any given moment, but we're reunited with the communion of saints throughout all time. As the priest says in the first prayer of the offertory, when he's raising the host and he's looking at the crucifix and he's, he's, he's saying he's offering this sacrifice right, for himself, for his own faults and sins and negligences, but he says, but for all those present, but also for all faithful Christians living, living and dead throughout time. And he's, in, he's uh, expanding that idea of praying there, asking for mercy, and offering the sacrifice that is, that is offered for all, himself, but for all those present, all the faithful, and throughout all the faithful, throughout not only the world at the moment, but throughout all time. To, to show that this is a matter of the, of the communion of saints. Uh, the communion of saints are those who are truly children of God. We know what it is that makes a soul holy and pleasing to God, and what unites them to Christ and through Christ with each other is sanctifying grace, the sanctifying grace of God. And um, so this is an acknowledgement, you know, the fact that it is in the plural is that Christ does want us to pray not only individual, individually, but together. It's kind of it's actually interesting when you when you hear uh, the Protestants pray. They they have Protestant uh, uh, prayer programs and uh, evangelists and so on. And uh, generally, there's one person who leads a prayer that he's sort of making up, right? I guess he would say, well, it's the Spirit that's leading him to make up this prayer, and everybody else just kind of silently listens. And says "Amen" at the end, you know. But here you have a prayer, uh, the the Our Father, that is specifically and explicitly given to our Lord by our Lord to us to pray together. And uh, they don't seem to focus on that. But we Catholics, we understand the 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 importance and centrality of that prayer. We have it at the very heart of the Mass, immediately after the Canon of the Mass, and just before the Communion. And um, it it's, it's forms the, uh, the the central the staple point and part of the rosary, beginning each decade of the rosary, as we're kind of pondering another mystery in the life of Christ, and we actually invoke the the, the Father through the Lord's prayer. And so, it, there's no question but that our Lord gave us that prayer to pray corporately as a body together. And you'll notice if you look in the Greek, the Greek scriptures, okay, as you read through that in the Greek and you look uh, at the variations that are noted for all of the different manuscripts and, and uncials and all that they, they have left of the, of the original Greek texts, you know, how that particular uh, section in St. Matthew chapter 6 and St. Luke chapter 11 how uniform it is, how they have 
only a few uh, a few variations, and then generally toward the very end, when people would have added commentaries, perhaps as they were writing, copying, they would have made notations in the margins. But when you look at that text and you see how unwavering it is, uh, as it has come down to us through the ages, and all of these different manuscripts, well, actually, I shouldn't say, you know, these, these pages, pieces of pages and fragments and so on, how uniform it is, it shows how sacred that was. That from generation to generation, it, it was just guarded, um, intact, and so beautifully. That's why, you know, you mentioned, when you mention Francis saying, well, let's change that, you know, and <laughs> it is so horrible, but this is typical of modernism, that nothing is sacred to them. Rather than try to adjust their thinking to understand, they want to adjust the record, the, the traditional record, in order to reflect their current and modern thinking, which is why they're called modernists. Sure. But moving on then to the next verse, chapter 10, begins, Thy kingdom come. Just a quick comment here from St. Augustine. He says, When they pray, let thy kingdom come. What else do they pray for, but who are already holy, but that they may persevere in that holiness that they now have given unto them? For no otherwise will the kingdom of God come than as it is certain it will come to those that persevere until the end. thought that was a great point he made there. Father. It is. Uh, well, you can be sure that it is a great point. <laughs> considering the author, yeah. thy kingdom come is, um, well, again, you know, Tom, we are just talking about the, the plural, our Father, right? And uh, again, I mean, this has to do with the idea of we being united as children within the kingdom of God, as being, as it were, citizens of uh, the divine society by grace. So again, uh, as I was just mentioning, I mean, the, the fact that this has come down to us through all these ages and all these copies and so uniform uh, indicates that generation after generation after generation, they've been praying this prayer together as a ritual, right, as a rite, and that they were taught to pray this by our Lord, and so the church was teaching them generation by generation. That explains why the uniformity of the text, because it has been kept so sacred throughout all that time. And uh, the fact that it was a corporate prayer, that we, something we prayed together for generation unto generations of Christians, going back to the very beginning, is another illustration of the, the significance of that point, thy kingdom come, let all acknowledge thy sovereignty, that thou art God, and worthy of all of our love and all of our obedience. Right? And the next phrase, of course, bears that out even more so. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I thought there's an interesting comment here by St. Cyprian again. He says, we ask not that God may do his own will, but that we may be enabled to do what he wills should be done by us, and that it may be done in us. We stand in need of that will, that is, of God's aid and protection. For no man is strong by his own strength, but is safe in the indulgence and pity of God. I thought that was an interesting idea of you know saying, thy will be done. Uh, not necessarily that he's doing it, but that it's being accomplished through us. But well, we don't have to ask God to consent to his own will. <laughs> and uh, he's acknowledging there that God's, God's will is sovereign. Um, 
And not, not that we're asking God to see to it that his will is done, but that we are saying, well, that's an expression of our, our own wills. That statement, thy will be done, is, is actually a statement of our own wills, that it, it, it be God's will that be done. And, um, you know, some can misinterpret that and say, well, you mean things happen without God's will or in spite of God's will. Well, uh, you know, we talk about the designed will of God, whereby, you know, were it not for the willfulness of creatures defying God, that things would have happened one way, right? But because of the willfulness of creatures defying God, for example, the fall of Lucifer and the angels who well, fell with him, and then the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, and all the sin that has followed it. Uh, God has provided for that, though. I think it's important that we'll get to this, this point, too, I'm sure, later on, that, that even, even by prayer, we're not changing God's mind uh, because uh, what we're doing is we're uh, uh, acting, what we would refer, refer to as the resigned will of God, who allows evil to happen, but only because by the power of his grace, he can actually bring some greater good from it. That is the only way that God will tolerate evil, because by grace he can, as it were, um, over, not only overcome it, but even make it a, an occasion of yielding greater good. And um, so uh, we have examples of that, even from the Old Testament and the New, of, of God uh, not changing his mind, but responding to prayer, but the, even the prayer is the result of the grace that God is giving. And so he's already, in his, in his divine mind, uh, decided how he's going to respond to that prayer. To us, it looks like he might have changed his mind. But no, he foresaw the prayer because it is the response to his grace. And he knew exactly what he would do because of that prayer. An example would be Moses not standing aside when the people were worthy of being destroyed. Uh, and another example of that was our Blessed Mother at the wedding feast of Canaan. When uh, her words, they have no wine, were greeted with our Lord's words, what is that to be unto thee, woman, my hour is not yet come. And yet, because she asked for it, the hour came. Not that Christ changed his mind, but he knew what he would do because he knew what she would do. God was, going, was giving her the grace to do to make that request of him, and he would grant it precisely because she prayed. So uh, when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're not, uh, we, we're not uh, eliciting merely a hope as to say, gee, God, we really hope that you, know, you have your way and that you prevail in the end. We're not saying that. Uh, we know that God's will prevail in the end. What we're saying is we're bringing our wills into line with God's wills. God's will. We're, we're, we're placing our wills at the disposal of God's will, as it were, in the service of God's will, and we're trying to bring our will into uniformity with God's will. That's, that's what that means. And that's what the commentator is saying. Sure, I think St. John Chrysostom continues that idea wonderfully when he, he says these words as in heaven, so on earth, must be taken as common to all three preceding petitions. Observe also how carefully it is worded. He said not, Father, hallow thy name in us, let thy kingdom come on us, do thy will in us. 
nor again, let us hallow thy name, let us enter into thy kingdom, let us do thy will, that it should not seem to be either God's doing only or man's doing only. But he used a middle form of speech, and in the impersonal verb, for as man can do nothing good without God's aid, so neither does God work good in man unless man wills it. I thought that's a perfect continuation of that idea of God and man. Because man has free will. Mm -hmm. And uh, man has to has to choose to cooperate with the grace of God. Right? Mm -hmm. All right, Father, moving on then to verse 11. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. It begins. Just a quick quote here from St. Augustine. He says, These three things, therefore, which have been asked in the foregoing petitions, are begun here on earth, and according to our proficiency are increased in us. But in another life, as we hope, they shall be everlastingly possessed in perfection. And the four remaining petitions we ask for temporal blessings, which are necessary to obtaining the eternal. The bread, which is accordingly the next petition in order, is a necessary. I thought that was an interesting idea, an interesting way to view the Our Father, divided into these seven different petitions. And uh, he says how, you know, the, the first ones, they are begun here on earth, and according to our proficiency, are increased in us. And then in the four remaining petitions, we ask for the temporal blessings, which are necessary to obtaining the eternal. I thought that was an interesting way to kind of divide up the Our Father into these kind of more spiritual, more lofty things. And then we kind of focus and say we need these these essential natural, uh, this temporal things in order to achieve these other worldly things. I that, sure. was, that was an interesting Well, it, it does reduce the Our Father, in a sense, to a series of petitions. And it, it, we are expressing our, our wishes, our will, there, no doubt about it. Uh, we, but I, I think we have to be careful there, too. I don't think the author wants to uh, simply reduce it to the level of petition, because there, there are different uh, purposes in prayer, and petition is the lo lowest right. of them. Right. Uh, so our Lord is not just telling us to go to the Father and tell Him what you want. You know, um, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it in heaven. It's actually a form of adoration of God. Sure. So not mere petition, but actual adoration. And um, <clears throat> again. <clears throat> Uh, it's not petition in the sense that, well, you can, it's something you can give or not. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not as though we're petitioning something that otherwise is not going to happen. You understand what I mean? Right. It's not a petition in that sense. Um, so if we don't petition this, then God will not grant this. Um, there are petitions that God will not grant unless we ask, right? That's, that's a prayer of supplication. He, really, he wants us to ask for it. Um, but in that first part of the Our Father, it, we really are making an act of adoration of God and recognizing his sovereignty, recognizing his deity, recognizing his, uh, his creation as, as creator and uh, the absolute rights he has all, over all of us. As I mentioned, our minds, our wills, our, our faith, our hope, our, our charity. Mm -hmm. So these really are acts of adoration of God. Sure. Um, uh, not, not mere petition. Right. All you can, uh, all you can certainly see the, the petition in them. But then when you get to the, give us this day our daily bread. Now, by the way, the, the word epiusion uh, in Greek for daily is sometimes rendered as super substantial. Right something beyond the mere bread of this world. And so you might even interpret that as being like a kind of a supernatural 
request too. Right. Beyond this world. Yeah. Because uh, super substantial would be almost a, an indication of what's coming in the Blessed Sacrament. Right. And, and they, they, all these fathers of the church that uh, St. Thomas has referenced here, they kind of, uh, they all mention that, how this kind of can, can be interpreted in both ways. Give us mm -hmm. our daily bread can be our, our natural... The bread of the world. Yeah, the bread of the world, but also, lives. like you said, they, some, the, the super substantial bread, the bread of life, Christ, how we need that. So it's almost like a kind of transition, like St. Augustine said, you know, how you have the more spiritual things to the temporal things, and this is kind of a, a perfect transition mm -hmm. because it, it's, it's kind of... Can, can it actually carries the significance of both. Right. Yep. Yep. All right, well, let's move on then to verse 12 here. What our Lord said is, Not by bread alone doth man live, mm -hmm. but, but by every word that cometh forth from the mouth of God. And who is the first word that cometh forth from the mouth of God? Yep. The divine word, right? right? And that's what we receive, the bread of heaven, right? right. It all ties together, doesn't it? Yes, it does, Father. Very beautifully. <laughs> Not thanks to us, certainly. It's almost like a katina uh, aria, a golden chain. Like a golden chain. Yeah. Well, Father, in verse 12, they have here, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A quote here from St. Cyprian. He says, After supply of food, next pardon of sin is asked for that he who is fed of God may live in God, and not only the present and passing life be provided for, but the eternal also, whereunto we may come if we receive the pardon of our sins, to which the Lord gives the name of debts. As he speaks further on, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desiredest me. How well it is for our need, how provident and saving a thing to be reminded that we are sinners compelled to make petition for our offenses, so that in claiming God's indulgence, the mind is recalled to a recollection of its guilt, that no man may plume himself with the pretense of innocency and perish more wretchedly through self-exaltation. He is instructed that he commits sin every day by being commanded to pray for his sins. Very to the point. <laughs> it is to the point. And it's also interesting that uh, the author uh, references that um, parable of the, the steward who is mm -hmm. forgiven the servant was forgiven the 10,000 talent debt, right? and he didn't even ask for it. He didn't even ask for it to be forgiven. He said, uh, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. So he wasn't asking for the debt to be forgiven. He was asking for patience, not even mercy. But the king volunteered the mercy. The servant said, have patience with me and I will pay thee. The king said, I will absolve you of the debt. No, I write it off, it is gone, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so the, the, it is not really so much the request of the servant but the, uh, for patience, but the granting of mercy of the king, which inspires us to say those words, as our Lord taught us, to not only be patient with us and will, as it were, pay you back or make up for it somehow, what we're asking for is what our, what our Lord said the king was willing to grant, and that is forgiveness, to simply forgive the debt, which is much more than mere patience, right? Um, so, um, you know, our Lord is teaching the apostles here the idea of forgiveness. And you find that over and over and over again in the Gospels, how important that is. Uh, forgive us our trespasses, but the part as we forgive those who trespass against us. I mean, yes, in, in English we use the word trespass. That has become the, the word that covers so much. Mm -hmm. Debts covers that. Uh, you know, <clears throat> a debt might be 
I think trespass is actually a better word in the sense that, uh, I mean, even what you're quoting there is a translation. Right. You're reading a translation, right. and it's translated as debt. But trespass seems to be a better word because, you know, one can incur a debt without fault. But when we talk about a debt that is due to uh, some immoral action, some crime that we've committed, we're, then we're talking about trespassing. We're talking about something wrong we did, and therefore we're in God's debt. <clears throat> Not because we've simply incurred some, we owe him something, okay? We owe him everything, right? We are in God's debt for everything as creatures, right? But the trespass indicates that we've, we've done something wrong, as though we have violated God's sovereignty and his goodness and his glory and his dignity, you know? And that is what the problem is, and we're asking for forgiveness for that. Um, so the, the word trespass actually carries much more, okay. much more of a significance than mere debt. Mm -hmm. As I say, you incur a debt without fault, but you can't incur a, a debt due to trespassing without fault. Sure. Father, you know, another <clears throat> aspect of that, that parable of the, uh, the debtor and, and the king forgiving him is the enormous amount of that debt, the 10,000 talents and how, how it enormous is it is. And I think, um, you know, as you, as you showed how that, that the, the debt is, uh, equates to sin, this enormous debt of this 10,000 talents, I think that that is an attempt to show the, uh, the terrible nature of sin and mm -hmm. how uh, we've mentioned it, before it was, on the program. It's practically that, impossible to pay. Right, that, that every sin is, no matter how small, no matter how slight, is, is really an infinite offense because we're offending an infinitely good mm -hmm. God. You, you know, there's the expression that uh, injury is in the person injured. And when you're offending an infinitely good God, no matter how slight, no matter how small, trivial the offense is, it's really an infinite offense. That's the measure of the gravity of the sin, exactly. You know, uh, our Lord uses that 10,000 talents, which must have really startled the people he was speaking to, because they knew the amount of gold, silver, they knew, you know, the value of this. And it would have occurred to them immediately, saying, how can a servant incur a debt of 10,000 talents, <laughs> even in a thousand lifetimes? How could a servant have incurred a debt like that? What did the king do? <clears throat> did he lend him the money? Uh, how is this possible? So they would know immediately uh, that our Lord was talking about something other than mere gold and silver, right? right. Um, he wasn't merely talking about theft here. Uh, he was talking about something supernatural, and we're talking about sin. And as you say, even a venial sin, because of the dignity of God who's offended by it, even that has the, the gravity of a debt of 10,000 talents and more. I mean, just because we're offending infinite dignity by our sins, even our venial sins. If we only understood the gravity of that, well, our Lord's parable was trying to make that get that point across to us. Right. Father, how, how terrifying are these words, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those trespasses against us. And you have, um, have uh, Pope St. Gregory here, he says, unless you forgive the sin, you cannot say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is another pseudo-Christism pseudo here. He says, with what hope then does he pray who cherishes hatred against another by whom he has been wronged? As he prays a falsehood on his lips when he says, I forgive, and does not forgive, so he asks indulgence of God, but no indulgence is granted him. 
There are many who, being unwilling to forgive those that trespass against them, will not use this prayer. How foolish, first, because he who does not pray in the manner Christ taught is not Christ's disciple. And secondly, because the Father does not readily hear any prayer which the Son has not dictated. For the Father knows the intention of the words of the Son, nor will he entertain such petitions as human presumption has suggested, but only those which Christ's wisdom has set forth. Well, I don't know what people think about this. Uh, I, I would uh, alter that a little bit. I dare to alter that somewhat. Um, that a person is not actually saying in the Our Father, I forgive my debtors or my, those who trespass against me. He's not saying, I forgive. What he's saying is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. So even more so, not only telling a lie if he doesn't forgive, he's almost invoking a kind of curse upon right, himself. Right. He is almost saying to God, well, uh, please, I'm praying, God, forgive me as I forgive. And if I don't, I'm in very big trouble. Right. If he really is asking, praying for that, mm-hmm. if he gets what he's praying for, he's going to be in serious trouble. And that, that- so when you say those words, every one of us should tremble, tremble a bit. Mm-hmm and realize the necessity of that, being very forgiving. It, it perfectly coincides again with that, with the parable of the debtor, of how when, after the king forgave him his enormous debt, he went out and throttled and, and choked the, the uh, other servant who owed him this small amount of money, and so he got the same, the same uh, torture that he inflicted upon his fellow servant because he, he got exactly what, what he paid for. Well, he got actually worse. Yeah. He was handed over to the torturers until he should pay all the debt. <clears throat> which, of course, would have been quite impossible, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, he was, you're right, Tom, he was throttling the, his fellow servant, and uh, he was going to be paying the price for that. So if, that's the, if that is the parable uh, illustration of those words of our Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, well, that's a very sobering thought, and we ought to be sobered. Sure. Certainly sobered by it. All right, Father, that leads us at last into... By the way, by the way, sure. not only is it a sobering thought for those who don't forgive, but it should also be a very encouraging thought for those who do. Because if our Lord is telling us that God will forgive us to the extent that we are willing to forgive others, and we strive to be forgiving, that gives us quite a bit of confidence, too, that our Lord has given us his word both ways, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that that is the measure by which God will forgive us. So, um, you know, God gives us the grace to forgive so that we can worthily pray the Our Father. And if we avail ourselves of that grace and do strive to be forgiving, and really renounce all thoughts of vengeance and uh, hatred and resentment against other people, uh, wherever we're aware of it, then that would give us a lot of confidence that God is going to be very merciful to us, too, in judging us. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to have, that confidence. All right, then, Father, it's it's uh, verse verse 13 here. This is the verse that Francis would have us change. It says, and lead us not into temptation. So I'll read through a few of the comments here, Father. This is pseudo Christism again. As he had above put many high things into men's mouths, teaching them to call God their Father, to pray that his kingdom might come, 
So now he adds a lesson of humility when he says, and lead us not into temptation. Uh, St. Augustine here, he says, some copies read, carry us not, an equivalent word, both being a translation of a Greek word. Many in interpreting say, suffer us not to be led into temptation, as being what is implied in the word lead. For God does not of himself lead a man, but suffer him to be led, from whom he has withdrawn his aid. Your comment there, Father. Uh, well, that Greek word, you know, is is an case. Is an case is literally lead lead us, okay? Lead us, and they have the may. Do not lead us. Lead us not into temptation. Or as Saint Augustine said, sometimes that is translated as carry us not, which is even more yeah. uh, forceful, I think, in terms of carrying us into temptation. Yeah. <clears throat> but. Uh, but you know, the idea that is said there, God does not actually uh, tempt man to evil, but he does put us to the test. God does try us, and he allows us to be tried, right? And uh, there we're asking God, um, and, uh, well, we're, we're, we're praying to be delivered from that, you know, as it were. And uh, we, we have a right to, to pray and ask God to spare us that. Um, does God have a right to allow us, sinners as we are, to undergo temptation? Yes, he does. Actually, actually, God allowed the serpent to enter into the garden in the first place and to try Adam and Eve. And not only that, but when God created the angels, they had to be tried, right? They had to make an act of humility to God. Um, and overcome their, their pride of life, right? To submit to God, that they would find their joy and their, uh, all the source of all the good that was in them, in God, and not in themselves, right? So, I mean, God does put to the test, there's no doubt about it. So why would we pray, lead us not into temptation, do not put us to the test, do not try us? Well, God, our Lord there is teaching us to pray for that. And I can't help but think that it's because that prayer itself is an answer to the whole idea of being tested, being tried. In other words, if, if I am going to be uh, put to the test by God, God knows what that test will be. But God also knows what, what graces he's going to give me. He knows those graces that he's going to give me. And, he, and he, God knows, and I know by faith, that the graces that God will give me in any temptation are going to be adequate, are going to be sufficient for me to do what is right and rather glorify God rather, rather than betray him in that temptation. God gave that grace to Eve. God gave that grace even to Lucifer. But he rejected it. I know that by faith God does that. As St. Paul says, God will not allow you to be, to be tested beyond your strength. But he himself will make issue. He will fight the temptation with you. So this is the power of his grace <clears throat> working in you. So, um, but here's the thing. If, in, if, if I can ask God not to do that and offer God instead my continual prayer for that grace, then I will be faithful. That I will be faithful and it will not be necessary for me to be tested or tried. But I'm asking God for that grace right now. That is already worth something. And uh, God can hear me praying that prayer earnestly and actually 
provide the graces necessary for my sanctification without the trial. You, you know, by virtue of the prayer and my continual request to God for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, the point, the point about, of all of this is the value of prayer. And so that what our Lord is teaching us is by, by offering that to God, that, that earnest prayer that we not be put to the test or tried um, by God through temptation, um, that God can answer that prayer and give us graces that we need to make progress in the spiritual life without having to undergo, as it were, the trial by fire. That's the power of prayer. It's wonderful, you know. But one thing we do know is this, too. That if God chooses to try us, again, by virtue of that prayer, that we, we know that he will give us the graces necessary, not only sufficient, but the efficacious graces necessary to overcome whatever temptation there may be. True. Um, so it's, that's a very important part of the, the, our Lord's Prayer, taught to us, and um, to suggest that we change it rather than understand it in the Catholic sense. Well, only a modernist would have the, as St. Pius X says, the pride and audacity to suggest, to suggest such a thing. By the way, Esenenkes is in both St. Matthew's Gospel, in the Greek, chapter 6, and in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. Uh, it's the same word. That is the word that is in the oldest manuscripts, right? Of, uh, and the oldest uh, uncials, the oldest fragments of, of the scriptures that relate to us, uh, the words of the, the Our Father. Of course, when our Lord taught his apostles, he taught them in uh, the Aramaic, right? The Greek was the language they used to convey that message to the world. Okay? <clears throat> and in the Greek, this is what we find. It's an case, meaning... Uh, and lead us, okay? May, as in any case, lead us not. Um, so we have to understand the meaning of that text, not change it mm-hmm. to suit our own predispositions about what it should have said. Father, since there's so much contention on this this one verse here, I thought I could briefly read everything that, that St. Thomas has compiled here. There's only another, another paragraph or so from the various fathers of the church. Uh, beginning with St. Cyprian here, he says, Herein it is shown that the adversary can nothing avail against us unless God first permit him, so that all our fear and devotion ought to be addressed to God. St. Augustine says, But it is one thing to be led into temptation, another to be tempted. For without temptation, none can be approved either to himself or to another. But every man is fully known to God before all trial. Therefore, we do not here pray that we may not be tempted, but that we may not be led into temptation as if one who was to be burnt alive should pray, not that he should not be touched by fire, but that he should not be burnt. For we are then led into temptations when such temptations befall us as we are not able to resist. Another uh, quote from St. Augustine here, when then we say, lead us not into temptation, what we ask is that we may not, deserted by his aid, either consent through the subtle snares or yield to the forcible might of any temptation. St. Cyprian again, And in so praying, we are cautioned of our own infirmity and weakness, lest any presumptuously exalt himself, that while a humble and submissive submissive confession comes first, and all is referred to God, whatever we suppliantly apply for may, by his gracious favor, be supplied. St. Augustine again, when the saints pray, lead us not into temptation, 
what else do they pray for than that they may persevere in their sanctity? This once granted, and that it is God's gift, this, that of him we ask it, shows none of the saints but holds to the end his abiding holiness. For none ceases to hold on his Christian profession till he be first overtaken by temptation. Therefore, we seek not to be led into temptation, that this may not happen to us. And if it does not happen, it is God that does not permit it to happen. For there is nothing done but what he either does or suffers to be done. He is therefore able to turn our wills from evil to good, to raise the fallen, and to direct him into the way that is pleasing to himself, to whom not in vain we plead, lead us not into temptation. For whoso is not led into temptation of his own evil will is free of all temptation. For each man is tempted of his own lust. God would have us pray to him that we may not be led into temptation, though he could have granted it without our prayer, that we might be kept in mind who it is from whom we receive all benefits. Let the church therefore observe her daily prayers. Uh, she prays that the unbelieving may believe. Therefore it is God that turns men to faith. She prays that the believers may persevere. God gives them perseverance even until the end. So a lot of uh, concurrence with the things that you mentioned, Father, and it seems the uh, reoccurring theme here is that just this lesson of humility, of how everything that we receive is by the grace of God, and we are totally entirely dependent upon Him to persevere through these temptations that are necessary in order to prove ourselves to God. Right. So, very Catholic, Catholic understanding there, as opposed to Francis's modernism. So. Uh, okay, Father, then the very last uh, part of verse 13 here, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Augustine uh, begins this section by saying, we ought to pray not only that we may not be led unto evil, from which we are at present free, but further that we may be set free from that into which we have already been led. Therefore, it follows, deliver us from evil. So this is the final petition of these seven petitions in the Our Father. This idea of delivering us from evil, all of our past and all of the present evil, all the future evil, just all evil in general, deliver us from that. It's the final, this is how our Lord concludes the, the uh, Lord's Prayer. So, uh, Father, I thought there's, there's a great point here made by St. Augustine again, where he, he ties together all these different uh, passages of sacred scripture and shows how these perfectly relate, perfectly coincide with what our Lord has given us in the Our Father. Uh, the quick quote here, he says, And whatever other words we may use, either introductory to quicken the affections, or in conclusion to add to them, we say nothing more than is contained in the Lord's Prayer, if we pray rightly and connectedly. For he who says, Glorify thyself in all nations, as thou art glorified among us, the quote from Ecclesiasticus, what else does he say than, Hallowed be thy name? He who prays, show thy face and we shall be safe, quote from Psalm 80, what is that but to say, let thy kingdom come? To say, direct my steps according to thy word, quote, uh, he passes from uh, Psalm 119, what is it more than thy will be done? To say from the book of Proverbs, give me neither poverty nor riches, what else is it than give us this day our daily bread? Uh, from Psalm 131 here, Lord, remember David in all his mercifulness. And if I have returned evil for evil, what else but forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors? He who says, Remove far from me all greediness of belly, what else does he say but lead us not into temptation? This is from Psalm 59. He who says, Save me, O my God, from my enemies, what else does he say but deliver us from evil? 
And if you thus go through all the words of the holy prayers, you will find nothing that is not contained in the Lord's Prayer. I thought that was fascinating, Father, to see how perfectly sacred scripture coincides everywhere else. Even though you have this, uh, the, these these psalms of King David that were written, what, a thousand years ago? Well, you would expect yeah. our Lord's Prayer, when our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray, he's going to give you a very concise summary of all of the prayers that the holy souls had prayed right. throughout time. That's, that he's that's, going to sum up in a masterful way, as only God can, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, the, the essence of all prayer. It's so yeah, so. This is essentially yeah, what I'm saying. It's so beautiful to see that, though, and I think that perfectly uh, illustrates the the truth of Catholicism to to see how there is this the Holy Ghost, this this one uh, uniform Spirit throughout the ages is leading and guiding everything, and so everything is perfectly coincided. Everything perfectly concurs. And I thought that's just uh, beautiful to see that. But yeah. So. Um, but you're leaving out for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, aren't you? Yeah, they mention that in here. Uh, I believe it's uh, pseudo Christosom or Saint John Christosom. He says that some copies have that for thine is mm -hmm. the kingdom and the power and the glory. Mm -hmm. Why do some copies have that and some not, Father? They were added somewhere along the line by a commentator who might have been copying the scriptures and wrote in the margin possibly a. Um, uh, a brief explanation of faith or something that he found inspiring, a thought he found inspiring, some, some, some um, little meditation that uh, came to his mind. But they're not in the original. Well, one has to be careful here, you see, because um, um, the expression for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, do, that expression does appear in some manuscripts. Uh, nowhere is it found uh, for the Gospel of St. Luke. Um, only for the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 6, do you find there are some manuscripts that record that statement, okay? But it's not in the original. Um, and considering the, the vast number of fragments um, of the sacred scriptures throughout the world, it is recorded in a handful of them, relatively a handful. So um, it, was, it was obviously added later. Um, the Protestants have latched onto that expression as though it somehow was going to be a, not so much even a statement of adoration of God or praise of God, as it was meant to be a way of uh, protesting Catholicism. And they latched onto that statement as, as some kind of a battle cry uh, to say, Catholics don't say that, we do, they're Catholic, we're Protestant, we're right, they're wrong. Uh, which is unfortunate because there's nothing theologically wrong with that statement at all. It's a very beautiful statement in itself, and it's all true. And Catholics have always known, you know, the gods are the kingdom, the power, and the glory. There's no doubt about that. But Catholics did not say that. Uh, they haven't said it from the very beginning. <clears throat> um, the reason being is because it wasn't originally in the prayer as our Lord taught it. It was added to some of the manuscripts by certain individuals down the road. One, one may well have, have, have made a marginal notation of it at some point in one of the early centuries, and others copied it. 
<clears throat> and uh, that's why it wound up in some of the manuscripts, but in the majority it's not there of the ancient uh, records. Um, and uh, I mean, were it not for the fact that um, that it has been invoked now by Protestants as sort of a badge of Protestantism, any Catholic might say that. The Novus Ordo uh, does include that in their modern Mass now. And they did it obviously as an ecumenical gesture toward Protestants, which is the worst possible motive to introduce something in the Mass, even though in itself it is not it is not anti-Catholic or, or unorthodox. It's made out to be such, you know, a representation of that. And, you know, there might even be Protestants who are listening to this, and, and I would just challenge them to do something. But the Catholics could do this, too. Um, I, I know, uh, well, of course, you'd have to have a little background in Greek. But uh, the, the United, uh, what is it, the, the, the American Bible Society, and the, uh, I have it here, actually. United. The Great New Testament, uh, under the direction of Kurt Aland, by the way, who is not a Catholic, by any means, okay? Uh, and the United Bible Societies produces pretty much the standard Greek text of the New Testament. And uh, they, they give the, 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 the text of the majority of the, uh, the, the documents that they have, okay, as the standard, but then they give all of the variations and all of the different fragments that they have in all the libraries and museums throughout the world. They study these. It's a remarkable work here. If one goes to this, which is not a Catholic specifically Catholic publication. It is actually, as I say, under the direction of Protestants. And they turn to St. Matthew chapter 6, and they turn to St. Luke chapter 11. And they look at the Greek text of the, of the, uh, the Our Father there, uh, the Pater Hemon, right? Uh, uh, the Our Father. They do not find in the, standard, in the standard text there the expression for this is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory even in the, the United Bible Society publication. They looked down at the bottom of the page and they see the footnotes there and they will see, yes, that expression does occur in a number of, in a number of uh, manuscripts, but it is not actually regarded as being part of the, the standard text of the Bible, even, even that produced by Protestant Bible scholars. Mm -hmm. Catholics are right. And the reason why it was not said by the Catholics in their Catholic churches is because of the reverence with which the Catholics, all Christians, true Christians, held that prayer as being taught by our Lord. And something you pointed out, that uh, it is in the plural, pray this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then, for, you know, lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our trespasses. Deliver us from evil. It was a corporate prayer that we were meant to pray together. And from the earliest days, that's exactly what they did. They prayed that prayer together. Uh, and because of that, one generation teaching another, it became that standard formula, which everyone knew. And the expression, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, was not part of that. For the, for the earliest centuries, it wasn't. It wasn't handed down, passed down. This is sacred tradition at its best. Respecting when you when you look in the in, you, in the uh, United Bible Society, 
standard Greek New Testament version of the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, you'll find in the body of the of the, the what they call the, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. It's very, very regular. Actually, St. Matthew, St. Luke, very few variations until you get to the very end. And that very end is where you find, for there lies the kingdom and the power and the glory. And then you find a large number of variations. And the reason being, it wasn't part of the prayer as it was prayed corporately in the churches by Christians in the earliest centuries. It was, as it were, an add-on later on, a later development. So, uh, in any case, um, you, you see tradition at work in our Lord giving us that prayer to pray together. Protestants also make a big issue of the question of private personal prayer and corporate prayer. They, they see Catholics praying together the standard formula of prayers. They, they really don't go in for that. It's like every man individually before God is Protestantism, right? They don't like this idea. Um, even even in choosing a preacher to go to, they'll, they'll choose what preacher they want to go to, depending on whether they agree with what he's saying, whether they like what he's saying or not. The idea of having a Mass as a universal form of worship given by God, right, to which we all go and in which we all participate, that is, that is not something, it's something totally foreign to them. But we see that God did give us these prayers to pray together, and he meant them to be prayed together, and that's what Catholics have done through all these ages. And we see the evidence of that even in the Greek standard text of the New Testament prepared predominantly by Protestant scholars who, in a sense, actually are paying tribute to that by what they, what they produce here. Father, we have just a minute left, and I thought uh, we could end on a, a positive note here and see how this uh, whole idea of the Our Father kind of ties together the uh, the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost, the Beatitudes, and all of the, the petitions in various parts of the Our Father. There's a absolutely beautiful quote here. I believe this is St. Isidore. It's initialed as I.D. St. Isidore. Uh, Father, I don't even think that this uh, that this passage re requires comment. It's it's so so beautiful, so striking here. I'll just read it from the text here. He says, This number of petitions seems to answer to the sevenfold number of the Beatitudes. If it is the fear of God by which are made blessed the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, let us ask that the name of God be hallowed among men, a reverent fear abiding forever and ever. If it be piety by which the meek are blessed, let us pray that his kingdom may come, that we may become meek and not resist him. If it be knowledge by which they that mourn are blessed, let us pray that his will may be done as in heaven, so on earth. For if the body consent with the spirit, as does earth with heaven, we shall not mourn. If fortitude be that by which they that hunger are blessed, let us pray that our daily bread be this day given us, by which we may come to full saturity. If it is counsel by which blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, let us forgive debts, that our debts may be forgiven us. If it be understanding by which they of pure heart are blessed, let us pray that we be not led into temptation, lest we have a double heart in the pursuit of temporal and earthly things, which are for our probation. If it be wisdom, by which blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, let us pray to be delivered from evil, for that very deliverance will make us free as sons of God. I thought, Father, that was the perfect ending to the whole commentary upon the Our Father, because it ties everything together. It shows how 
God works perfectly together, how the sevenfold gifts of the Holy Ghost, the Beatitudes, and the Our Father, the central tenets of Catholicism, they are all perfectly in line with one another. I thought that was a perfect, perfect ending to this commentary on the Our Father. So, Father, thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you going over this with me. Thank you. Sure. Thank you very much. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.